Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and every so often, a book crosses my desk that makes me return to the microphone. I have a different role in the network right now, but when I saw Andrew Keene's new book, How to Fix the Future, I said to myself, I know Andrew, and I know Andrew is a good writer and a smart guy, so I want to read this book, and I'm lucky enough to get to talk to him today. So, Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, Marshall. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm a Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur, impresario. Um, I do a lot of different things, uh, including write books. Um, I have a, a, a video interview show on TechCrunch, which is a leading technology network, an AOL-owned network. Uh, I have my own little salon-style startup called FutureCast. Um, I do a lot of consulting and various other business things. Mm-hmm. That sounds very Silicon Valley-ish, actually. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> As opposed Valley. to, I'm a plumber. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I'm not a plumber. And yeah, really, uh, I'm dressed, really? uh, as we talk, I'm dressed in a very Silicon Valley way, my fleece and my jeans. Is that right? So, yes, I am of Silicon Valley type. I'm not ashamed of that. Okay, that's just fine. I don't see any problem with that at all. So tell us why you wrote How to Fix the Future. So why did I write How to Fix the Future? Um, well, this is my fourth book. I, I wrote three before. Some of some of your listeners may be familiar with them. Hopefully some of them read them. Uh, Cult of the Amateur, Digital Vertigo, and the Internet's Not the Answer. And they've all been very critical of our digital culture. Uh, these books have been written over the last 10 years. And when I wrote Cult of the Amateur in 2007, I was one of the very, very few people to actually be questioning the digital revolution and saying, look, it's not really democratizing. It's creating new monopolies. It's undermining our creative economy and creating all sorts of other problems. Over that last 10 years, I've been less and less in a minority. More and more people are coming out and actually making similar arguments to the ones that I've been making over the last 10 years. So I figured that I couldn't keep on writing these critiques of Silicon Valley. Firstly, they get a bit boring. Secondly, everyone else is making the same arguments. There's no point in me writing a fourth book explaining what's gone wrong, why the Internet's not the answer. So uh, the obvious next step was to, in Silicon Valley language, pivot, which is kind of reinvent myself and say, OK, well, we know the problems now. Everyone's kind of agreeing. Uh, even Silicon Valley insiders recognize this problem. So how do we fix it? How do we make the Silicon Valley revolution, the digital revolution, which is changing every industry from publishing and news to transportation, healthcare, education, finance, government? How do we make it successful? So this book... It's not a cheerful book in a sense that uh, everyone should be happy and I'm suggesting that everything will inevitably work out. I'm not saying there's anything inevitable about fixing the future, but I, I lay out a series of ideas which aren't abstract. Uh, the book itself is made up of uh, 
many interviews that I've done over the last couple of years, traveling around the world. I traveled over 200,000 miles talking to government leaders, investors, entrepreneurs about ways that people are actually fixing the future from Estonia to Singapore to India to Germany to the east and the west coast of the U.S. Could you tell us very briefly, I know you've written a lot about this, and we probably should just refer people to your previous books, but just for the benefit of our listeners, what is the basic critique that you have, if one can boil it down, of the digital revolution? What do we call it now, by the way? The internet revolution, the digital revolution, the Silicon Valley revolution? I don't know. What is the basic problem that we're talking about here? Yeah, I um, I don't like the word internet anymore. I think that's become rather archaic. My last book was, as I suggested, was called Internet's Not the Answer. And I was always a bit wary even of that. I mean, it's a good title in a way, but in a way it also speaks to an old world. I was an internet entrepreneur in the 90s. I had a company called Audio Cafe in the mid-90s. And in those days, the internet was a very sexy, cutting-edge term. These days, no one really talks about the internet. They talk about AI, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, the internet of things. Um, so the internet itself has become kind of archaic. In terms of the problems, um, I would say there are three or fourfold. The first is that the internet Digital the, the digital revolution, which is changing, as I said, every industry, was like so many revolutions in the past, and you know this as a historian, uh, certainly better than I do, uh, was articulated in the language of equality and freedom, particularly in equality, in the undermining of old elites and the democratization of media, the democratization of the economy. And actually, the reverse has happened. We've had a kind of um, uh, re-monopolization, if you like, or a re-centralization of the economy. The five largest companies in the world today are all West Coast tech companies, five largest being the most capitalized, uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft. Microsoft is a kind of fifth company, but those four are really changing everything. Um, so the first problem is one of inequality as opposed to equality. The second problem is of jobs. We were promised that this would create a kind of a, uh, a new wave of innovation that would allow more and more jobs. But the reality, I think, of this revolution is increasingly, especially with AI, technology is undermining jobs. It's threatening more and more of our traditional occupations. Excuse me. Uh, thirdly, the problem is a cultural one in two ways. Firstly, it's resulted in a coarsening of our culture. Twitter and Facebook and all these other social media networks are, I think, um, causing, but not only causing, are also an effect of our increasingly polarized culture. Um, of people being unable to talk to one another. So what we've seen is the appearance of a kind of echo chamber culture. Uh, and of course, we've also had the crisis of truth. The internet was supposed to enable what Stephen Colbert called truthiness, although he meant it, of course, ironically. Um, it was supposed to break through the supposed biases of old media, the white male biases. But in fact, what we've had is the relativization of truth and as a consequence, the appearance of fake news, the breakdown of 
gatekeepers of traditional creator, uh, curators, you know, the editors of the New York Times or publishers or other people who curated truth and uh, uh, uh trust in the old media world has been replaced by the crowd, by the mob, if you like, if you're thinking critically. And of course, that has allowed um, bad actors like our friend Vladimir Putin in Russia to game the system and undermine not only our sense of truth, but even our democratic institutions. So the crisis is economic, cultural, political. Um, it, it It's both a cause and effect of many, I think, of, 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 the, of the most salient and worrying problems of contemporary life. Digital used to be a marginal issue. When you used to walk into a bookstore, you used to go to the, the back of the store to the tech section uh, if you wanted to read about the internet or the technology revolution. These days, it's front and center. Not because technology is in itself interesting. I don't think it's any more or less interesting than it's ever been but because it impacts on every aspect of our society, from our economy to our culture to our politics, um, and above all else, perhaps to our sense of who we are. Uh, the real broad crisis and challenge and indeed opportunity is what it means to be human in the age of the machine. So that's the, the kind of meta theme in the book. H how do we reinvent or reinforce our humanity, what it means to be a human being in an age where we're inventing these smart machines. And of course, it's affecting all of us from our addiction to our smartphones, to the way in which machines are replacing our jobs, to the way in which we build relationships and how we spend our time. So there's a lot of stuff here. It is extraordinary how quickly it's happened. I know that I watch my kids with cell phones in their hands sometimes, and I just try to imagine what it was like before those things existed. And I was very resistant to them. I don't think I got a cell phone until, I want to say it was, I don't think I got a cell phone until about 2005. A smartphone no or a cell phone? A actual cell phone. I really resisted cell phones. Yes, I did not even have a cell phone. So I actually had a yeah. receiver. I had to pick up it on landline. I mean, do people have landlines anymore? I don't know. I certainly don't. Well, we're talking yeah, over I the know. internet in this. That's interview. right. Yeah. Exactly. But it is incredible. I remember, how yeah, I remember getting a cell phone. Um, in the mid-90s when I had a startup and I, like everybody else, at some point refused to have one thinking that they were annoying and that they would change my life. And then the people who worked for me basically said, look, uh, unless you get a cell phone, we're all leaving. So I got one and my life has never been the same. But I think there's a big difference between cell phones and smartphones. I mean, cell phones, the, the first cell phone I owned in the mid-90s was a clamshell phone that was just basically a mobile phone. It couldn't do anything else. These days, we've all got iPhones, which are mini computers, uh, which 50 years ago would have been supercomputers, which would have cost millions of dollars and been housed in independent buildings. These days, we can put them in our pockets. And in 10 or 20 years, they'll be in our hands or our faces or our eyes. So it is a real profound change. And of course, the always-on nature of our culture, the fact that we're always available, always working, always having access to each other, changes how it's a profound change in how we live our lives. It's, it is the change. As you say, we all look back and think, how could we have ever lived in a pre-email a pre age, a pre-Amazon age, a pre-Twitter or Facebook age? And for most of us, I mean, especially for these so-called digital natives, kids who are born into this world, it really is 
unimaginable. And and I think you and I are in the interesting situation of being uh, on the cusp of this thing and knowing both worlds intimately, knowing the pre-digital world, so knowing what it was like to have landlines and not being readily accessible all the time, and now living in this you know, new world of always-on digital society. Yeah, well, it certainly feels very different because I do remember what it felt like to really be out of pocket. Like nobody could get a hold of me. And yeah. you know, I, I'm not saying it was a great thing or a bad thing, but I remember that feeling that I'm now more or less by myself. <laughs> no yeah. one can get me. And I, think I don't that have that it, feeling anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of the most um, interesting aspects of the revolution. And I feel rather sympathetic to my kids uh, because they can't escape in the way we could escape. When I was growing up, I grew up in England, and I used to just go away, go to Europe, go overseas, and my parents couldn't act, couldn't get hold of me. And I was a relatively decent kid, so I would call them every week. But that's the best they were going to get. They had no way of getting hold of me, you know. So if I'd have been killed or something or injured, maybe they would have heard from me. But otherwise, they had no idea where I was, and. This wasn't traumatic for them or me. They just took it for granted. Today, if we don't hear from our kids every hour on our IM or uh, on email, we have a stroke. And one of the interesting things, I think it's one of the problems of growing up, is these kids don't have the independence we have. They don't have the privacy. They don't have the ability to disappear. And one of the things that I actually... um, predict in my book is that there is going to be a real reaction amongst the so-called digital natives to this because they're suddenly going to wake up to the reality that they don't have privacy and that they want to escape the world and they have no way of doing it. So my hope is actually with the younger generation. I think people like us, the old farts, we don't get it really. And it's interesting that many of the original utopians of digital society were older people because uh, they're always the ones who are most, uh, I think, uh, sort of uh, unrealistic in their expectations. Young people are always more realistic. Right. Well, I mean, just to meditate for a second on that, I mean, when I did first get a cell phone and I did get a smartphone, it solved problems for me, problems which had lived in my life for a long time. Whereas I think for my kids, those items come with problems. They already have embedded in them deficits, which I don't really even recognize. You know, like I still think it's wonderful to surf, you know, the web on my phone. I just think it's the greatest thing ever. Whereas to them, that's just not really. It's there's nothing special about that at all. Well, but 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 why is that a problem? Well, it's not a problem for me because I think it's great. Um, for them, they think it's kind of old hat. Yeah, well, they... words, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the same sense of excitement for them as it does for me. Yeah, well, my uh, I was I was uh, telling my son about um, we was my son's very much in my my son who's twenty is very much into clothes and uh, I was trying to pitch him the idea of a cashmere hoodie, and, <laughs> yeah. which I thought was rather amusing, but he yeah, certainly wasn't. It is amusing. <laughs> he wasn't amused, and he said to me, "That is the worst idea since Facebook." I, Facebook is a particularly bad idea, and cashmere hoodies yeah. even worse. So uh, yeah, so uh, 
That's what I mean. Yeah, that's these kids captured it in an well, but everything. But that, but that's the nice thing about digital is everyone. You know, there is this kind of uh, tendency, maybe in the human brain, to always imagine that we're at the end of history. Always imagine that there isn't a new chapter. Always imagine that we've come to the end of the road. It's a particularly, I think, an American problem because uh, Americans' general ignorance of history and you know, think that they're always living. It's the sort of the, the narcissism in American culture to always assume that they, that that we're at the living at this sort of moment in history. But the reality is that there never is a final chapter and that, you know, Facebook will be replaced by something else and whatever replaces Facebook will be replaced by something after that. And it's the next generation who are going to really be building this digital world with Internet of Things and virtual reality and augmented reality and above all else, uh, artificial intelligence. So it's it's a wonderfully exciting but also daunting challenge. Where, and again, as a historian, you will understand this. That the, my book is quite historical in the sense that it argues that we've been we've lived through this before, um, not identically. You never history obviously never repeats itself. Certainly not identically. But as I think it's Mark Twain said, it chimes, and. Um, you know, the Industrial Revolution is our guide as a map. Um, we've lived through it, and the challenges in, in many ways are no different, and the solutions in a broad sense are no different. So in a sense, I'm a bit of a, his, a futurist, but in another sense, I'm a historian and trying to look back in order to understand the future. Yeah, I, I'm very glad to hear you talk about the American. I don't know if it's just American, but it's, it is American, definitely, lack of historical perspective on things. And that's one of the nice things. I don't know if you'll agree with me about this, but getting a little bit older, because I remember very clearly, I was a very early adopter of Apple products. And I remember in the 90s when it was basically all over for Apple and that Microsoft was going to rule the world. And people talked about antitrust suits against Microsoft and, you know, poor Steve Jobs and Next Computer. And it was all over and nothing ever changes. See, it's the end of times. <laughs> you can see. Like, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I tell people this all the time. You know, Facebook looks permanent, but it's not. In our lifetime, it will go away. Or at least yeah, it but it won't just. But, but, but on the other hand, that's um, that's that's okay to say that. But it doesn't just go away on its own. So the Microsoft example is a really interesting one. In the in the mid '90s, Microsoft seemed incredibly dominant, and it was in the business of crushing anything. That challenged it. So it tried to crush Netscape. It tried to crush AOL. Uh, they missed the first wave of the internet, but they tried quite quickly to catch up and use their sort of the methods of a monopolist to crush quasi-legal or quasi-illegal methods of a monopolist to crush opposition. So had it not been for the, and, and this is one of the arguments in my book, and I actually interviewed Gary Reback, who was one of the influential Silicon Valley lawyers who took on Microsoft in the 90s. Had it not been for people like Reback, had it not been for antitrust regulation on Microsoft, sure, the company wasn't actually broken up, but they were weakened and distracted. You never would have had the eruption of innovation of Web, of web 2.0 of companies like Google at first and then Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and all these other companies. So uh, things don't just change on their own. The the essence of my book, if there's one word that summarizes the book, it's agency. It's about human agency. Things don't just happen. It requires us to act. 
And the challenge is today, as it was in the middle of the 19th century, is to act, to use our agency to shape a better world. Mm -hmm. So let's get right to that argument. I appreciated that very much too. Uh, one does have the sense that we've been here before, particularly if you do study the Industrial Revolution. And we know, at least you and I do, I'm sure lots of our listeners know as well, that the Industrial Revolution had lots of critics at the time. And people actually did exercise their agency and do things to, I'm not quite what the, the word I'm looking for is that they, they adapted it, they tamed it, they, they sort of made what was going on in kind of hardcore industrial capitalism useful for society at large. They you molded it. about the analogy? Uh, molded it. Yeah, yeah I like or, that. Or right? Even molded a better it, yeah. word is massaged it. Look, there are, there are yeah. in the industrial age, there were two or three different reactions. The first reaction was a, a hardcore reactionary romanticism. Uh, you know the British poets, for example, look back at you know in the, when they looked at Preston or Manchester and the factories and the steam and the environmental disaster of early industrialization, they idealized the rural age, they idealized the peasant and, and rural society, which was I guess in a sense legitimate, although it wasn't realistic to go back to that. So on the one hand, there was the kind of, if you like, utopian romanticism. And on the other hand, there were romantic futurists. There were the free market people who just said, look, leave this thing alone and everything will eventually work itself out. And there were also the romantic utopian revolutionaries like Marx who believed that somehow this, all this technology would magically result through revolution in a society of pure equality, of communism. So the romanticism was both of the left of the right, was both a progressive and reactionary form. And then the other group, which I think I'm in, um, and I hope most of us are in, are the reformists, the masseurs, if you like, the, manip you know, the people who said, okay, this isn't ideal. It, it doesn't work in many ways. In the middle of the 19th century, there were kids in... There were kids, you know, 11-year-olds working in factories and having their arms cut off. There was radical inequality between the tiny group of factory owners, what Marx called the bourgeoisie, and the proletariat. There were dreadful living conditions. There was the catastrophic environmental consequences of early industrialization. There was the cultural and existential trauma of this massive shift from rural to urban life. Um, and over the last 150 years, many of these problems have been fixed, not ideally, not perfectly, and they've been fixed. And, and these are the, the five, um, if you like, technologies or tools that I suggest we have to use today as we've always used in the past. The first is through regulation. The second is through innovation. The third is through citizen activism. The fourth is through consumer uh, engagement. And the fifth is through education. And those five tools came together. Sometimes it's hard to separate one from the other to make the industrial revolution better. So in the book, I, I use some examples of the car industry and the food industry to show that, you know, over the last 150 years, through a mix of those five tools, innovation and regulation and consumer and citizen activism and education, uh, we've slowly improved the world, and we need to do the same with the digital revolution. The solution doesn't – some people say, well, we just need to heavily regulate. 
that's not a solution as the Soviet model. And you know this very well. The Soviet model didn't work. Uh, but the other model of the pure market doesn't work. That's where we're at now. The radical kind of libertarians of Silicon Valley just say, well, leave us alone. Everything will work itself out in the end. And it doesn't. It just results in more monopolies, more inequality. So we need a mix of innovation and regulation. And education is key, as it was in the Industrial Revolution. And the role of consumers in demanding better products, just as consumers in the Industrial Revolution demanded better quality food or safer cars. So today, we need to demand less addictive digital products. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, citizens are key as well, perhaps central in, in, in this narrative. Citizens have to demand a better quality of life, as they did in the Industrial Revolution. It hasn't always worked itself out. Certainly not perfect. And the bumps along the way of communism and fascism in some ways were catastrophic. But we're going to have similar bumps unless we address these issues now, which is the core of the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I should tell people who haven't read the book, and that's probably most of you at this point since it was just released. Uh, Andrew gives lots of excellent historical examples from other industries about how these five things, regulation, competitive innovation, um, responsibility, and then choice and education, how they – were used in the Industrial Revolution in the mid-19th or early 20th century in order to, as he says, massage capitalism. And that's something as a historian I very much appreciate. It's a kind of practical book. It's not flighty. There's not a lot. I'm sorry, I have to say this. You're probably not going to hear much about Foucault in it. But no, you, of course not. But you are going to hear nothing yeah, about Foucault. You I mean, uh, I, got, uh, I got a nice early, um, an, uh, I've had some nice early reviews. And one of the reviews, which I thought, I was thrilled with, um, described the book as complex but accessible. And, and, and that's the goal of the book. Yeah. These are complex issues. I haven't trivialized them. I haven't turned them into saying, well, all we need to do is, you know, put on an orange sweatshirt and everything will get fixed. Or all we need to do is put Mark Zuckerberg in jail or tax him 99%. Or all we need to do is invent this new technology like blockchain and that will solve everything. Uh, you know, those are the those are the solutions that don't work. So the solutions are complex, but my narrative hopefully is accessible. This is not an academic book. This is a you know this is a popular book designed for people who are interested in these issues, and we should all be interested as parents and citizens and workers um, who want to understand these issues, but also want a nice read. So yeah, it's very nice of you to say that it's accessible, um, but the goal of writing it was to make it accessible, was not to write an academic book or write about obscure, irrelevant French thinkers. Right. Well, I mean, and, you know, ripped right out of the headlines, so to say, just yesterday, was it? We had an example of how some of these tools that use at least two of them, how it's hard to say exactly where the line should be drawn and how we negotiate these things. So I'm thinking about so-called net neutrality and the fact that at least the Trump administration of the United States walked away from it. And this is kind of a... It's a, it's a discussion about where to draw the line between regulation on the one hand, which you like and I like, and competitive innovation on the other. So could you talk a little bit about that issue and how it might play out in your thinking? Well, in the book, I interview Margaret Vestager, the, um, the commissioner, the EU commissioner of antitrust or of competition, who is really challenging the monopolists in Europe and leading the charge. Um, but I also go to Germany and look at innovators and entrepreneurs who um, who are inventing new business models, using new technologies to 
invent business. So you you can't you can't just rely on regulation. Regulation in itself doesn't work. And Vestager wants to, as she says, she wants to just create a a a, a, a fair platform, a, a flat. You know, the, the cliche is the flat. What is it? The flat playing field or the fair playing field? The le- the level playing field to enable competition at the moment. These companies like Facebook and Google are not really enabling people to do that, not because they're evil companies, but because they're for-profit companies and obviously want to control markets. So innovation and regulation go together, or the best regulators are enabling innovation in the way in which Microsoft was regulated in some ways in the 90s, enabled the innovators at Google to change the economy. So we've we've returned to a similar point. The network effect of the digital economy lends itself to monopolists, not because these companies are bad, but because it's a winner-take-all economy. We see it in e-commerce with Amazon. We see it in the innovation, uh, the, the, the information economy with Google. We see it in social networking with Facebook. None of these companies have com- competition. Yeah, yeah. How do we uh, give them competition? How do we regulate that environment? I'm thinking particularly about an issue I know you've been interested in before, and I've heard you speak about and write about very, very, really kind of almost movingly, and that is what happens to journalism in this context and what journalists do as gatekeepers. How, how do we, using regulation or competitive innovation or social responsibility, I don't know, which, how do we, I guess I want to say, breathe life back into, you know, journalism? <laughs> Well, I'm not actually sure that journalism, you know, I, I wrote a book, uh, as you know, in, in 2007 called Cult of the Amateur, uh, how the Internet's killing our culture, in which I was particularly pessimistic. I actually think that people are coming around to recognizing that, again, the, the solution isn't in technology. The solution isn't even with the journalists. The solution is with consumers. So people need to start paying for content again. And one of the reasons why I'm actually quite optimistic about the younger generation, the so-called digital natives, is they're recognizing that. You've seen it with music. We had this catastrophic 10-year period uh, between about 2000, well, between 2000 and 2010, the post-Napster period, where everyone said, well, we can get music for free and it's great for the music industry. And of course, it was a disaster for the music industry. The global revenue of the recorded music industry dropped in half between 2000 and 2010 or 2015. Uh, Many labels went out of business. Many artists suffered dramatically. Uh, Listeners were fine in the sense that they got all their music for free, but there was less and less good music because there wasn't the resources to create it. Today, though, I think consumers have begun to realize that they need to pay for their content. So they've embraced services like Spotify um, and Rhapsody, and they're paying for their content. That's not ideal, as I explain in the book. It may not be ultimately benefiting artists, and there's still a need for uh, a, a different kind of equation in terms of how to split the revenue between uh, companies like Spotify and the labels and the artists. But at least it's a beginning. So I think the big challenge with uh, the content business, whether it's journalism or music or movies, is to get people to pay again for content. The advertising model doesn't work. I mean, you know this. We were talking before this interview about the challenges of running your network. How do you make money? Uh, the promise was always advertising, 
But that hasn't translated. Uh, the internet has commodified the advertising business. And the other problem, of course, and this comes back to the one of competition, is that 85% of all advertising revenue online goes to Google or Facebook. That's bad in terms of a competitive environment, and it's bad for creative guys like you or creative artists or journalists. So people need to be paying directly. One solution I suggest is a network like Patreon, which is doing away with the middleman and enabling direct relationships between artists or creative people and the audience so that we can directly pay for quality journalism. The other thing I think, and this has particularly come out of the, I think the, the Trump fiasco, is that uh, people are recognizing the value of quality news. So whilst the New York Times hasn't exactly been thrilled by the election of Donald Trump and has been, I think, uh, one of the most vocal and responsible critics of, of this new regime, their business has actually done rather well out of the Trump administration. Um, I interview uh, Mark Thompson, the CEO of the New York Times company for this, and he recognizes that the paywall has actually benefited dramatically in the Trump age, and more and more people are paying for their news. So I think ultimately it's a very banal, prosaic, uh, solution, but it's still, I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, the reality is the way to save quality media is for all of us to pay for it. Because if you can reinvent the business model and we're paid for quality content, then uh, then there'll be the resources for journalists or interviewers like you to do their job. Otherwise, people can't do it for free. I always was very, very critical of the Wikipedia model. I got involved in all sorts of debates with people like Jimmy Wales, who suggested that Wikipedia was great because now everyone could be an information provider. Uh, but of course, the, the Wikipedia model was that Jimmy Wales may not get rich, but gets very famous out of Wikipedia, but no one else benefits. Everyone else is giving away their labor for free. So where's the economics in that? Who's paying who? How can anyone spend hours a day doing Wikipedia entries or journalism uh, when there's no economic reward? How are people going to pay their rent? How are they going to feed their kids? How are they going to feed and clothe themselves? So ultimately, this comes down to economics and people learning to pay again for quality content. We pay for our food. We pay for our rent. We pay for our cars. We pay for everything. Why shouldn't we pay for online content? There's nothing noble. There's nothing good morally about free content. There's no reason why it should be any more free than food or uh, or cars or transportation or anything else. If you want to go and live in North Korea, fine, you can have lots of free stuff, but I don't think anyone would choose to do that. Mm -hmm. And I have to say very early on, as you, you said this yourself, but I will just reinforce what you said. Very early on, you were uh, one of the few sane commentators about this because I remember Lawrence Lessig explaining to everybody, supposedly a very bright guy, how giving away content was a great thing for everyone. <laughs> it just yeah. didn't and you know make any sense. And you know what's interesting about guys like Lessig and Chris Anderson's another one? They've all disappeared. You know, I was arguing with people like Lessig and uh, Anderson that wrote, wrote this terrible book called The Long Tail and Free. Uh, Anderson has disappeared. Now he's losing money for startups. I think his drone company has gone bust. Lessig now has gone into politics, running for president, another failure, of course. 
Um, and these people are like these sort of pied pipers selling garbage to people and then moving on quickly when it becomes obvious that what they're talking about isn't true. Um, and I was like the little girl in the crowd in the, you know, the emperor not having any clothes. It was obvious. I, it didn't require any, it didn't require any in intellectual intelligence. I mean, when you're not being paid for your content, how are you going to make any money? And the advertising model clearly didn't work. The reason why I was able to do it was twofold. Firstly, I was an internet entrepreneur, so I knew the business. I'd had startups of my own that failed because of the problems with the advertising business. <coughs> Excuse me. And secondly, people would listen to me as an advertising insider, a Silicon Valley person. I wasn't some academic from some you know musty department saying this isn't going to work i was actually an insider and thirdly you're actually I, losing your shirt right and i and i had a platform i i had the nerve to do it and i had a publisher who was willing to back me um but you know it didn't require any great genius to recognize this thing couldn't work yeah yeah no i i see just what you mean but you it was a brave thing you did i remember but i, I would also say that I, I would say it was um it was um it was pretty easy to do, actually. Well, you're a very humble person. So I was trying to make I'm this clear. I'm humble. You know me better than well, that. Well, you know, I don't I know. I say many things about myself. Stuff. I'm just... not humble. Okay. So one of the points I tried to make earlier, but there's a generational aspect to this, because, I again, I'll go back to my own experience. I talked earlier about remembering landlines. I remember when I fir I remember the day I first saw Napster. And I thought it was one of the greatest days of my life <laughs> because it solved the problem for me. The problem was I couldn't get what I wanted for free. And now I could. I knew good and well, of course, that it was unsustainable. As well. But I tell you what, and I'm going to admit it here. And if the FCC or whomever or the music companies want to come after me, that's okay. I downloaded a lot of free music. You did? Really a lot. Right, I, did I did. I was a bad boy, but I just couldn't help myself. It's like finding $10 on the ground. I it's guess like if you're in Japan, in you find $10 shop. on yeah, the ground. Like being in yeah, it is like being in like, Oh, my God. Right. But, you know, not everybody likes Led Zeppelin. My kids don't, for example. So they're like, we want new music. And to get new music, they know they have to pay for it. They have to pay people to produce. They know this. But for me, I just wanted the entire Led Zeppelin catalog instantly for free. <laughs> well, in a way, I was kind of bitter toward the music industry because I'd already bought it in two other formats. <laughs> right, so, which same is a good business true. model. You have yeah, to admit. I'm not saying what I did was right. Yeah, but, you know, this sort of sense of consumer empowerment, ultimately, and, and, you know, that's always been my argument, is we think we were winning, but actually we were losing because the other thing about this new economy, which is the core of the problem of the Google-Facebook business model, is that we thought we were getting something for free in all this content. But actually, we were the ones who had been turned into the product. We were the ones who were having all our data collated by these companies. We were the ones who were being bombarded with increasingly personalized advertising. We were the ones who were being uh, you know, mined for our data. So it, it wasn't really free. Now, Napster was short-lived. But the problem, even with free products like Google and Facebook, is that they're not really free. Uh, and that's what I think people are waking up to. The real cost is privacy. And, and that, again, in terms of fixing the future, means that in the long run, I believe these business models are profoundly flawed. And in 100 years, when people look back at this economy, they will think, what were people thinking about? When, how would they have ever you know, used products like Google and Facebook that were 
turning us into product. In the same way as when we look back at the middle of the 19th century, we think to ourselves, how could we ever have allowed kids to work in factories? Or, or how could we have, 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 have lived with such economic catastrophe? You know, the, the equivalent of the, the economic catastrophe of the first wave of the Industrial Revolution is the data catastrophe and the, and the, data, uh, the, the, the data pollution of our age. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, I, I again, to I, I'm sort of a simple-minded person, and I was shopping for a watch the other day. I like to look at watches. I admit it. I'm a little vain in that way. And I was looking at watches, and I used the browser to do it. And suddenly, in my browser and my Facebook feed and everything else, all of a sudden, all these advertisement for watches that I had looked <laughs> start to appear like magic. And I got to say, I when I, I I said that that's that can't be coincidental. And I thought to myself, wow, these people have been tracking me. And I didn't even know that. Now, again, watches, that's a pretty banal thing. But I did feel that it was a bit intrusive, thank you very much. I didn't really like the fact that all of a sudden I was being pitched all these watches by watch companies. I didn't buy a watch, by the way. <laughs> I wear a Timex. It's worth about 14 bucks. Um, but my, my point is, is that I think you're right. That The way in which they gather this data is very, very intrusive. I also, I also want to say something you said about advertising and the – it is kind of a generational thing, and, and, and I think that many content producers, especially that have relied on advertising in the past, have been hurt very badly by Google and Facebook and even Craigslist. Um, I know that even for this network, it's very hard for us to find advertisers, even though we have a very good, what I think is a very good uh, sort of s uh, set of impressions to sell, so to say. And, and that's because it's just so much easier to go buy ad targeted advertising on Facebook. And it is a startling and easy thing, I have to say. They've really made it dead simple to track people and then feed them things that, you know, the algorithm says they want. And, and again, it makes it very hard for us to do business. You know, we ask people to donate money to the Numix network. But again, we are just at this moment, I, I think, again, it's generational where people are learning that they have to pay for things like the New Books Network and the New York Times and whatever else. So, yeah, right. so your challenge value. as a new business is what do you do? You, you, you know, you have a decent audience, but do you shut that audience down essentially and say, well, you have to pay for this content? And that forces you. I haven't done that. No, that I, yeah, you I, we, we chose not to do that. Yeah. But that would force you to make the content perhaps of a higher quality. Do you build a paywall? Uh, I, I think right. that's well, really these are all things that we've considered. You know, right? But that's maybe your. You know, you have that alternative, or you have the alternative of of having kind of advertorial content, which I assume you wouldn't want. Which is no, we have not done that. No. Um, so. But but you have to be innovative too. You, I, I mean, I think the important thing to remind yourself is that, or remind your listeners, is no one has the right to business models or the right to exist unless you're innovative, unless you're flexible. Um, you're going to fail. Uh, it's it's very very hard to make a successful content business these days. I know because I fail. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I feel like if the New Books Network can't stand on its own two feet, then it can't stand on its own two feet. I'm certainly not in a position to support it for a very long period of time. And I am trying to find a way to give people value for money, as they say in the UK. And I think eventually we'll do that. But the, the environment we're in right now, with the dominance of these few advertising entities, they really suck up all the advertising dollars and make our job, you know, they have, we have to be more innovative than we have been in the past. And I don't particularly mind that. And I think that we will crack this nut because I think in the case of the New Books Network, I mean, we have people like you on, 
<laughs> and I remember, I will just tell the listeners when I told Andrew that we were going to talk for an hour, he audibly gasped. <laughs> That's because he's probably used to being interviewed for about six minutes. Yeah, <laughs> well, but, minutes uh, I mean, are, are you getting uh, are you getting people listening to this whole interview? Yes, they will listen to the whole. Shouldn't interview. you be breaking it down though? Shouldn't you be packaging it differently? I mean, I think that. If I had more time um, and more, if I had, yeah, if I had additional resources, I might do that. Yes. But as, as it stands right now, this is the kind of content we produce. And, and again, you mentioned innovation. One of the discoveries that we made in the New Books Network is precisely that people will listen to an hour of someone like you mm -hmm. talking very seriously and intelligently about a topic. I wouldn't listen we to myself for now. <laughs> Yeah, well, many people wouldn't, I admit it, but there are lots of people that would. I remember I had a discussion with the the people that do the philosophy channel here, and they're pretty hardcore analytic philosophers, I'd call them. They don't do popular philosophy, and I told them it would be an hour, and they said, is that all? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's and you know what? That's thing, our most popular I mean, the you know, the, the beautiful thing, obviously, about the internet is you can run, you know, 10 hours of this stuff, and it doesn't cost you any more. Right, exactly. But you still need to come up yeah, no, it doesn't with cost the business anymore. model. And actually, one of the one of the people I speak to in the book who I thought was one of the, the most interesting conversations is the professor of philosophy, uh, the, Ber the Bertrand Russell Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge University. Mm -hmm. uh, best job in the world. Right. Oh, he he claims at yeah. least it's the best, which I'm sure it is. That's what he says. I don't uh, know about that. Yeah. And he talks about sort of the, the morality of, 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 of Silicon Valley or what the morality needs to be. So, you know, philosophers have a role in this world too. Well, and I, I think they do, which is why people, they listen, a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people listen to very serious academic philosophers talk about very serious uh, philosophical matters. And as far as I can tell, and I used to work at a large magazine that was a general interest magazine that pervaded this kind of stuff, that was a discovery. Because when I started, people had the exact same reaction that you had, and that is, if it goes more than 10 minutes, no one is going to listen. And I thought that was true. I really did. And then I found out I was wrong. <laughs> but luckily, the internet is the kind of place and the means of the uh, sort of dispersal of these kinds of items is, is, is inexpensive enough that you can do lots of experimenting. And that's what we do on the New Books Network. We do tons of experimenting. We have all kinds of shows that have different formats and run different so how, lengths. Uh, I mean, if you listen how, to how big should this audience, how, how many people would you expect this audience? Uh, well, I think in the, fir in the first week it, that it's, it, it is posted, about 5,000 people, roughly between three and 6,000 people will listen to it. And well, I then, hope all those people buy my book. I hope they do too. I'm encouraging them to. And then what will happen is it will decline pretty rapidly to about, and this is a very interesting finding as well, uh, about 50 a month forever. So we have done 4,000, over 4,000 interviews. And I got to tell you, some of the ones that I did eight years ago still get downloaded Wow, 50 times a month. It's very weird, you know, because again, these topics well, are kind Chris, of evergreen. Chris, Chris I mean, Anderson's are evergreen. long tail, except it yeah, it is. I mean, they are kind of evergreen. And, and well, and this presents a problem with us as well. I mean, not to get too deep into the weeds here, but advertisers want fresh content. They want what's going to sell this week. Well, most of our downloads come from what, what they call our back catalog, and I like to call our library. So, and I have to explain this to them that, that it isn't radio. It isn't what's on today or was on yesterday. It was what was on seven years ago that people are listening to. So it's more like Spotify 
in that way. It's that people are still listening to the Led Zeppelin catalog, although my kids can't understand why. Um, so, you know, these are challenges, but I, but I, I, I agree with put you. up a paywall and charge people and buy <laughs> because that's, you know, that's what, if, if you want to learn from journalism, that's the only way to survive. You know, you have two models. You have the, the New York Times model where they bit the bullet and put up a paywall and it's been a struggle, but now they're beginning to be successful versus, say, the Guardian, the Guardian model, which still prides itself on giving away its content for free and are burning millions of dollars a month and ultimately will have to put up a paywall. The only way in which content business can survive in this new world, it, unless they're fortunate enough to have a kind of monopoly like YouTube, is to get users to pay for their content. And your listeners should be paying. And if they're going to invest an hour of their time in listening to this kind of thing, <laughs> what, what, why would they not be willing to pay you know, $5 a month to access all your archives? Right. I, I agree with you completely. We've never had a paywall, but I've thought about it very seriously. I even did a little survey, monkey survey once, and I asked everybody who listened. We got thousands of responses and pretty much said, everybody said I wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> well, then, now, I don't then know if they would not. Of course, well, say that's that. also your reality check. Then you don't have a business. You should shut down and do something else. Then I don't have a business. You're right. I should shut down tomorrow. So I'm going to end this interview right now because Andrew's just convinced me to stop the business. And you've just shut the business. He's oh. shut the business, and that's the end of it, everyone. No more. Free. That's it. It's all over you. Now, it's, it started during an interview with you. I didn't tell this story, but I should tell the people that are listening to this that actually a long time ago, I think it was in 2005, Andrew interviewed me about uh, an article that I had written in the Atlantic Magazine on Wikipedia. And that's how I got the idea for the New Books Network. Right. It's now really you've got the new I, idea I, for the new idea, right? Or, you know, a new network. Yeah, right. New network new to to charge people. That's and if exactly they're not right. willing to pay well. I mean, if people aren't willing to pay, say, I don't know, $5 a month for this, it's high quality stuff, then they, they shouldn't be able to access You're right. You're right. And if they're that poor, if they're that poor that they can't afford five dollars a month, I mean that doesn't even buy you a cup of coffee in Starbucks. No, I don't go to Starbucks, but yeah, I, not for any political any reason because reason. I can't afford five dollars for a cup of coffee. So you wouldn't? Would you pay for this? Mark? Would you pay for your own network? Would I pay for my own network? Uh, yeah, I think I would actually. I, and often when I when I think about the network, I often think about me growing up. We talked about this a little bit before, the, but I'm from the middle part of the United States, a place which most people, especially Silicon Valley people, would think of as total flyover territory in Kansas. And I really hungered for things like this when I was a kid. Uh, we didn't have it where I was growing up, and you know, I, I like to hang out at the library, and I used to you know, play, you know, various kinds of board games. You play Dungeons and Dragons, you know, anything to kind of get my mind. And I, I would have really liked it. I used to go, I remember I used to go to the library to look at Jane's Defense Weekly. I don't know why the library got it. I just was fascinated by it. I just wanted more of that stuff. And, um, and it was a kind of, it wasn't an impoverished area. It was very rich compared to the rest of the world. But, I, you know, I think if I were a 17 or 18 year old kid living in Kansas, I think I'd listen to these things. I do because I get to talk to you know again it's intelligent people talking about pretty serious stuff, and it's free. I mean, essentially, it's free. So I think I would be a customer. Yeah, I always think about myself. You know, growing up in Kansas, like I have access to the, this world of ideas that otherwise I would not have access to. And it's t one of the interesting things about the New Books Network is is about a third of our audience is from non English speaking countries. That's peculiar, isn't it? 
Yeah. Very odd. So they don't yeah. understand. <laughs> not, they don't understand what, they don't we're, understand what we're saying. Yeah. Right. Well, either that or using it to practice their English. I don't know which, but I'm happy to make well, a that contribution. Well, that doesn't also people. mean, just because yeah. they're from non-English, it doesn't mean they're not English speakers. I think that they are English speakers, and I think that they listen and they're glad to have these things because they don't have access to them. Because a typical book, unlike yours, yours comes from a very reputable, even excellent trade publisher, whereas a book Grove from – Atlanta. I won't be specific. Well, right, Grove Atlantic, I won't be specific, but a university press, if they would have published your book, this book could easily cost $90. And no one would ever hear about it. So that's part of the thing we do on the network is we try to get news about these books. Some of which, some of these books are actually very good. The person just didn't have an agent or it wasn't written the right style or to get pitched the right way. But in fact, they're really good books. It's just that they're put out by operations affiliated with universities. They do fine work, but they char have to charge 80 or $90 for the book and they don't have any publicity budget. So nobody ever hears about the book. So th this is a problem. It's, you know, it's unequal distribution of this of, of information. And we don't like that. At least I don't like that. I, you know, and, and so I, I like the idea that we get the word out about books that people just don't know about and, and they might really like, and maybe they will buy them. I don't know. I mean, if they don't buy them, they can get the kind of kernels of wisdom out of them by listening to these interviews. At least that's the idea. Whether it works or not, I'll leave it to the listeners to, to, um, to to judge but I, but I will say this i mean a lot of the people that listen to these podcasts i know because i hear from them all the time are actually commuters who have kind of gone through the this american life catalog or whatever it happens to be and they want intellectual content of some sort and you know our, our and and our interviews are we're not the most professionally produced we don't have any money and you know well we we, we buy no advertising it's all it's all distributed on social media and itunes and things like this but they find us and, you know, they're generally interested and it meets the, you know, it meets the minimal standards of audio quality and the people who do the talking are pretty smart. That's about all I can tell you about it. So in that way, it works very well for us. But I mean, I, I just want to come back to this point that you made about innovation. If we're not innovative enough on the network, if I'm not innovative enough on the network to get people to pay for it, then I have no business doing this outside just having a charity, which I can't afford. Right. You don't have any right to make money just because no, you're producing I, I decent content. No. I mean, I think that was the yeah, assumption exactly some people right. make. And um, yeah, I absolutely no, not. I don't, I don't think that for a second. I don't think that but for I a second. But I think people really have to, to – I, I think that we still have the time to get people to pay for content again. I mean, I know it's a bit of a boring idea, but um, it's, it's the only solution. I mean, that's not – necessarily the only thing i argue in the book but it's certainly one of the, the the key things when it comes to content well short of having i mean short short of having state run uh, basically publishing houses that you're right and we don't want so state you should look at Pat, i don't know if you've looked at patreon but you know the direct of enabling uh d the direct relationship between readers and authors might also be a good way to go and and work with them and and, you know, you're right. I, I think they've been very innovative. Actually, I learned about Patreon through a student, of course. I learned most everything through my students because they are up on these things. Like, I really just learned about Reddit. I think I was the last person on earth to not know what Reddit was. Reddit, by the way, has completely supplanted the world of email listservs that we lived in. Remember how important those were? They don't really exist anymore. <laughs> now Reddit is where everybody goes for these sort of micro topics to discuss things. I didn't know this, but yeah, which is a good thing. I mean, Reddit's pretty cool. Um, but I mean, I think you're right. Patreon, these other sorts of organizations, they, they are connecting cash and actually the people, the end users to the people that do the creative aspect. And, and, but again, I, I'm very glad to hear you say this because I don't think I have any right to do this. I did it because I thought it would be good for the Republic and good for me, period, end of story. 
it may be good for the republic and it may not be good for me and in which case i should not Wait, be doing which it republic? <laughs> i mean republic in the sense of you know good for democracy at large oh, that is we're educating people that's our sort of mission i mean you know it's a little bit airy fairy as you might say in the uk but the mission of the new books network is you know, I always think of it as freeing information that is trapped in expensive books. Yours is inexpensive. I no, say. how much is mine? Tell everyone how much mine is. I think it's like, I, I don't, uh, let's see here. I think it's like, I think you can get the, let me, I'm going to, it's fourteen ninety nine on Kindle. That's the way I would read it. Um, and 16, buy the physical, uh, yeah, 1666, hardcover. Yeah. And I'm not saying you should buy it on Amazon, but you know, Amazon is usually pretty good and you get it the next day. So everyone's listening. Get it the next everyone day. should if you, buy it now and put it up on the chart so everyone would. I think it's actually – and if you click through the New Books Network to buy it, we're part of the Amazon affiliate program, so we get 4%. Oh, excellent. Definitely. <laughs> well, that's another business model. I don't know. It, it, well, yeah, we get money that way. We don't get a lot of money, but we get some money. And Amazon is lowering the amount they pay as more people enter the market, which makes perfect sense to me. I'm not, I'm not going to say Amazon is a bad thing as a book – again, as somebody that consumes books – Amazon is a pretty darn good thing because <laughs> you can get any book you want pretty much overnight for a reasonable price. So that, that's that's a good thing, right? I mean, well, that. and I have a section on the book on Bezos, and I'm ambivalent about him, and not only about Amazon but about him. I just wish he would call. I just wish he would call me or somebody like that from. If you're listening from Amazon, please call me because I would love to do business with Amazon. We interview authors, and you have authors, and maybe we could do business. I don't know how that would work. So if anybody from Amazon is listening, please call me. I'm available all the time. Or call Andrew who will call me and our people will talk. Okay. Andrew, we've taken up more of your – see, an hour went by just like that. I told you it would. And we've taken up a huge amount of your time. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, let me ask our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is what are you working on now? What's your next project? Um, my next project is promoting this book, which is the business. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the last thing. You know, the, the real it. business yeah. of a writer is selling their book. I mean, not the writing is a pain, and it's all the rest of it. But now is the now is the the real business, which is appearing on shows like this, promoting it, selling it. Because again, it comes back to business. You know, writing books is noble and fun and exciting and all the rest of it. But unless the book sells you're worthless as a writer. So my business is in, in convincing your readers that they should spend their 15 or $20 and read my 300 page. Figure out, you know, anyone who has listened to this and doesn't want to know how to fix the future um, has a problem. So you all need to go out and read the book. I mean, just think for 20, 20, book, 20 bucks, you can fix the future. That's really the best deal you're going to get all day or all week or all year. Oh, yeah, I would say at least all year. Yeah, all, all, That's a all millennium. Right all there. millennium. Next thousand yeah. years, you won't get a right. better deal. So go and that's buy the true. book. I think that that's true. And, and, and Marshall right. well, will get his 4%. So he can... I will get my 4%. Yeah, that's true. And make the New Books Network a viable business model and we'll survive another day. To interview more, we'll interview Andrew in his next book. Absolutely. Yeah, we know what it's about. So anyway, let me just tell everybody we've been talking to very pleasurably and enjoyably talking to Andrew Keene about his book, How to Fix the Future, in which he explains how to fix the future. I very much encourage everybody to go and buy this book. Andrew, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Marsha. That was fun. Absolutely. And for everybody who listens to this podcast, thank you. And we hope to talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.